This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, the first full day of the election campaign raises the question, do the leaders need to instantly know key stats like the unemployment rate? The politics of Anthony Albanese's unemployment gaffe tonight, but we'll also look at what the unemployment figures do and do not tell us about Australians and work. Also, school principals cite heavy workloads, exhaustion and burnout as reasons they are prematurely leaving the job. So what can be done to attract and retain them? COVID is something that's just broke the camel's back. So I haven't seen any data about whether each jurisdiction is worse off than another, but it absolutely is a national problem. And borders are open, but Australia is not using a proven method of watching for new COVID variants via sewage. No time in my life has research progressed so fast over such a short period in the last two years to when we first started People were saying this is impossible and now everybody in the world is doing it. Welcome to the program and to Campaign 2022. Anthony, Anthony Albanese has been caught out by a couple of gotcha questions on the first full day of the federal campaign. He's brushed it off as human, but the coalition will seize on it in its bid to claim the mantle of best economic manager. The Prime Minister has faced some tough questions of his own on day one as well, though, about the status of his Cabinet member, Alan Tudge, someone he had said wasn't returning. Scott Morrison is on the New South Wales south coast among victims of the 2019-20 bushfires, while Mr Albanese is in Tasmania, both leaders in seats held marginally by their opponents. PM's Isabel Rowe is going to be watching this campaign closely for you and she's here to catch you up on day one. Anthony Albanese is embarking on a six-week interview for the ultimate job and he's found out early it pays to be prepared for the curly questions. Do you know the official cash rate off the top of your head? Oh, look, we, we can do the old, uh, old Q&A stuff over 50 but different... do you know it? Over, over 50, 50 different figures. The Labor leader was announcing new services for hearing-impaired children in the Tasmanian seat of Bass, an electorate held by Liberal MP Bridget Archer by just 0.4 of a percent. He talked around that cash rate question, but a second question on the numbers brought him unstuck. What's the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4, sorry, I'm not sure what it is. Later in the day, Mr Albanese fronted cameras again, briefed and apologetic. Earlier today, I made a mistake. I'm human. But when I make a mistake, I'll fess up to it and I'll set about correcting that mistake. I won't blame someone else. I'll accept responsibility. That's what leaders do. Do you know what the figures are? Yes, 0.1 is the cash rate and 4% is the unemployment rate. The Coalition is unlikely to let Anthony Albanese forget that moment as the campaign is fought on which party can better handle the economy. But the Prime Minister faced his own difficulties today. In the seat of Gilmore on the New South Wales south coast, Scott Morrison stood by his new candidate, the former state member for Bega, Andrew Constance, 
who said the Prime Minister had got the welcome he deserved in a visit to the region during the devastating 2020 bushfires. Those are comments Andrew Constance admits he can't hide from. We can't reverse history here, but the reality is I am going to be fierce in my representation of the people of Gilmore. I'm not going to sit there as a wallflower. I'll call it how it is. Look, Andrew and I have known each other, mate, how long? 20, 20, 25 years thereabouts. And Andrew, I love it that he's on my team because he calls it and he calls it straight. And he did on that day. And what did we do after that? We got together. We worked out what the challenges were we had to overcome. It seems many locals haven't forgotten this comment from that time either. I don't hold a hose, mate, and I don't sit in the control room. Protesters jeered as Scott Morrison's official vehicle made a swift exit from today's press conference. It's all right to drive your car flat out, eh? That's a disgrace. Here, he, uh, two years ago, he didn't even have enough speed to come and hold a hose for us and help. We were in devastation from here all the way back down the coast. Where was Morrison? He was in Honolulu enjoying himself. Scott Morrison also tried to clarify the status of Alan Tudge, his former education minister, who stood aside in March following an investigation into allegations he abused a former staffer, something he denies. Mr Morrison had said Alan Tudge wouldn't be returning to Cabinet. Now he says he never technically left. No one else has been sworn in as education minister. No one has gone to the Governor-General. There have been no resignations. We've always been very clear about that. And should Mr Tudge wish to return, I certainly, I, I know he will. The election will be held on the 21st of May, but pre-poll voting starts on the 9th of May. On RN Breakfast, Electoral Commissioner Tom Rogers urged people to plan their vote as much as they could to avoid being stuck at home with COVID on election day. If you wake up on the day and you, you're subject to a, a, a health order on the day, we are working on a telephone voting option. Uh, which will be a first um, uh, for, for those people that are affected that way. But I just point out that it is absolutely going to be an emergency measure. Um, and you can imagine if, if not handled correctly, we have to read out you know, the Senate ballot paper uh, for people that are telephone voting. It's going to take some time. So I urge people to only use that if they actually are subject to that health order. It, it, it truly is a contingency measure. Yes, those massive Senate ballot papers. Electoral Commissioner Tom Rogers, Isabel Rowe, our reporter. Well, while the pundits have been parsing whether or not a senior politician should know the unemployment rate instantly, we thought you might like to know a little bit more about the unemployment rate itself and what it means. For obvious reasons, it's one of the most talked about statistics. But with the nature of work becoming less predictable for many people... Is the unemployment rate an accurate reflection of what's happening in the labour market? David Sparks takes a look. 4.0%. It's the number Anthony Albanese's critics and the media are having a field day with after his slip-up this morning. But given it doesn't take into account underemployment or stagnant wage growth, is the unemployment rate still a helpful statistic? It is useful, but it doesn't necessarily capture the whole picture. Joe Masters is Chief Economist with Baron Joey Capital. Because what we know is that there are people that have jobs that are not working as many hours as they would like to. And we call that underemployment. And when we add those two together, it gives us a more complete picture of spare capacity in the labour market. 
Joe Masters says while it's hard to measure underemployment, it's clear that it's affecting people in a range of different situations. So that can be, for example, young Australians who are working in casual jobs that may want more hours, say, during um, university holidays or the like. It can be females who are working part-time that would like a few more hours but are struggling to find the childcare or, or the like to do that. And um, it can actually be full-time people who perhaps would like a bit of overtime that they're not getting um, the opportunity to do. How much of the rise of the gig economy contributes to this phenomenon that we have that doesn't show up in the jobless rate? Well, that would be some of it if those people working in the gig economy want to work more hours. So I guess there's a couple of different motivations to work in the gig economy. Um, Some people are doing it because they have to and they probably do want to work more hours. Some people are doing it because they actually like the flexibility of being able to, to work some hours and different hours next week. So it's hard to know, but we do know that people that work in the gig economy often have more than one job and that isn't always picked up. All of these factors mean assessing a government's performance isn't simple. So I think this question of who is a better economic manager doesn't have a a straightforward, easy answer to it. And the reason for that is a lot of policies take a long time to feed through into the economy. And also there's always other things happening in the economy outside of just an election or policy changes. Um, What I think is important, though, is the labour market at the moment is unquestionably strong. We've got very low unemployment, record low female unemployment, We've seen a fall in youth unemployment. Underemployment has come down. So the conditions at the moment are undeniably strong. Even if the unemployment rate is an imperfect measurement, economists say it's still an important one. Associate Professor Stephen Hamilton is an economist at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and a visiting fellow at the Australian National University. I do think it is useful, to be honest, and I think a lot of the anti-unemployment rate uh, discussion is maybe a bit over the top. So, uh, you know, people point to underemployment, point to people working one hour a week and saying they're employed. That is a really small fraction of total employment. During the pandemic, the unemployment rate wasn't particularly useful because, you know, systematically across the economy, people were deliberately not participating in the workforce. But as the pandemic has recovered, I think the unemployment rate is much more indicative uh, than than during the pandemic. And I I do think a 4% unemployment rate is very impressive. Certainly, it's indicative of the strongest labour market we've had in half a century. So to that that extent, I think it is very useful. But Stephen Hamilton agrees one statistic by itself is never going to paint a full picture. What I would say is never look at one number. So if you want to look at the health of the labour market, if you want to look at the health of the economy more broadly, you should look at a suite of economic indicators, not just one, right? So when you're looking at wages, we can look at average wage growth, right? And and in the budget papers, they use, use the wage price index, for example. But even that is imperfect, right? Because it's just picking up an average. It doesn't necessarily, all of that average could be coming from the top end of town, not the bottom end. So nothing is perfect. And so I would caution listeners, right? Never just listen to one number. Try and take into account as much of the richness and complexity of the economy that we can by paying attention to a range of indicators. There'll be an update on the headline unemployment rate on Thursday amid expectations that the jobless rate fell to 3.9% last month. David Sparks with that report. Well, a new concern has emerged for the future of school education in Australia with increasing numbers of principals bringing forward their retirement. 
Principals are citing excessive workloads, exhaustion and burnout, made worse by the pandemic. It's not just in lockdown-weary states like New South Wales and Victoria, where schools have had to manage long stretches of remote learning, but a national trend that's been percolating for some time. Emily Burke reports. For some school principals, the workload has been growing for years, but now it's not worth staying on in the top job. COVID is something that's just broke the camel's back. COVID has just made the job untenable for so many principals. Loretta Piazza is the principal of Meadow Glen Primary School and she told ABC Melbourne why she's leaving the profession. There's a very, very high level of that technical work where you've got to get the paperwork. Then you've got the other side of the job that brings enormous emotion to the work and that's our work that we do with kids, especially the, the kids who are antisocial and, you know, are like square pegs in round holes. Then we've got, there's a large group of staff who either have their own issues or just don't want to be teaching or, you know, there's something going on in their lives. And then there's the parents. They can bring a lot of turmoil to the principal's life. Justin Mullally is from the Australian Education Union. Workload is the number one issue and they say that they would be more likely to stay if there was significant um, efforts put in to reduce workload and we certainly think that uh, there are measures the government can take that would uh, alleviate uh, some of that workload. What, what would that include? There's a whole range of things that schools are required to do uh, that simply uh, don't need to be done at the local school level. They can be done more centrally by the department. The Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership's latest National Teacher Workforce Report, released in December, found that one in four teachers intended to leave the profession before retirement, with most citing unmanageable workloads. That's affecting the pipeline of educators who might aspire to the principal role. So I haven't seen any data about whether each jurisdiction is worse off than another, but it absolutely is a national problem. It certainly is a problem in, in primary in our secondary and in our special schools. Andrew Pierpoint is the president of the Australian Secondary Principals Association. If you follow it through, our principals going backwards during their careers were teachers first. So by having a lack of teachers um, initially now, we're going to have a further lacking of, of principals uh, into our future. Is there something wrong with the structure of that role that that principals aren't given enough support, they're not able to delegate, they can't work in a team, a leadership team scenario. There's too much pressure and responsibility. I've had many Jeopardy principals say to me over time, why would I want to take on the role of the principal for only a few dollars more per fortnight? You know, we don't want deputy principals looking sideways saying, I don't want to do that job. We want deputy principals in their office looking at the principal's job and saying, that's for me, I want to go and get that job. Um, but at the moment, the workload and the work volume is just uh, out of the water. Dr Jordana Hunter is the Grattan Institute's Program Director for School Education. Certainly what we heard in our major survey of teachers and school leaders in 2021 was that 92% of teachers felt they didn't have time for effective teaching and principals were also worried about that challenge that teachers were facing. And, uh, you know, I think like any profession, when you feel like you don't have time to do the core aspects of your role, it can be very disempowering. I think what's really important is that we help schools to get the 
core parts of the work uh, and the processes in place so that they can deal with those inevitable spot fires without things going off course. And I guess what I worry about is that you know, governments perhaps haven't done as much as they could to help set up those conditions so that principals have the headspace to deal with those inevitable challenges and still go home at the end of the day feeling like they've made a really, you know, positive contribution to student learning and to the wellbeing of their staff. Dr Jordana Hunter is the Grattan Institute's Program Director for School Education. Emily Burke with that report. You're listening to PM on the radio, on the ABC Listen app and via the podcast. I'm Linda Mottram on Twitter. I'm at Linda Mottram. Ahead, frightening tales of COVID lockdown in Shanghai have been all over social media. Now China's clamping down. East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels up shortly. Ukraine's armed forces are bracing for a new Russian offensive with Russian soldiers massing in the east of the nation. Already the onslaught has been stepping up. On the weekend, Russian forces bombarded a number of towns, damaging civilian targets and adding to the already grim toll of civilian dead and injured from the invasion, now six weeks old. As the conflict hurtles into a new phase, Ukraine's president is relentless in his calls for Western nations to provide more arms for the defence of his country. Rachel Mealy reports. In a late night video address to his people, Vladimir Zelensky warned that the war on Ukraine is about to intensify. Russian troops will move to even larger operations in the east of our state, he said. They may use even more missiles against us, even more air bombs. But we are preparing for their actions. We will answer. He accused Russia of torture, cowardice and spreading misinformation. Russian officials have confirmed that the focus of its forces is now the complete liberation of the Donbass region in Ukraine's east. Satellite images show hundreds of Russian military personnel massing in the town of Izum. The Ukrainian ambassador to the US, Oksana Markarova, says Ukraine is bracing for an onslaught. So we are preparing for everything. We are preparing for uh, securing the civilians. That's why uh, the oblast announced the uh, safe evacuation of uh, children and women. Local officials say the death toll from last week's missile strike on a train station in the Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk has risen to 57, while Ukraine's military says 10 people, including children, have been killed in Russian shelling in the Kharkiv region. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba says sitting down to peace talks with Russians would be difficult. Listen, it's extremely difficult to even think about sitting down with people who uh, commit or uh, excuse or find, or find excuses for all these atrocities and war crimes who have inflicted such a horrendous uh, damage on, uh, on Ukraine. But I understand one thing. If uh, sitting down with uh, the Russians will help me to prevent at least one massacre like in Bucha or at least another attack in Kramator like in Kramatorsk, I have to take that opportunity. Retired Major General Mick Ryan says as the Russian onslaught in the east of Ukraine begins, the war is moving into another phase. Well, we're seeing the Ukrainian government recommend that its citizens leave the east of the country. It knows this coming fight, this coming Russian offensive in the east is going to be brutal, it's going to be bloody and it's going to be a long fight of attrition. 
The Ukrainian government, unlike the Russians, is trying to save its own civilians from this kind of warfare. He believes Russia triggers refugee crises to impact Western nations. Lots of Ukrainian refugees streaming throughout Ukraine and into uh, Western Europe, once again, is part of the Russian playbook. This is exactly what they did in Syria. Uh, The Russian government, Putin and the military, love seeing these refugees consume the resources of the West. While the destruction on the ground continues to unfold, the World Bank says it expects Ukraine's economy to shrink by 45% this year. It's also forecasting that there'll be greater economic damage than was caused by the COVID-19 pandemic across Eastern Europe and Central Asia, with unprecedented sanctions leading to a steep recession in Russia as well. Rachel Mealy with that report. Well, China's government appears to be ramping up efforts to censor news about the problems being caused by its COVID lockdown of the city of Shanghai. Authorities in China's biggest town have also announced a slight easing of the lockdown that's keeping 26 million people confined to their homes. As 26,000 new cases were recorded today, a new daily record. East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels joined me for the latest. Well, Linda, they've announced what effectively is a path out of the city-wide lockdown where they're going to classify local districts into three uh, different types of risk areas depending on how many positive COVID cases there are in each district. And it's a pathway whereby if you get no cases for seven days, then in this particular district, people will be allowed out, uh, but they'll still be subject to some form of restrictions. And if cases do emerge in those areas, then they go back into lockdown. So given that today Shanghai clocked about 26,000 cases across the city, um, it's probably a, a maybe a morale-boosting thing for local residents to know that uh, there is now an, an alternative plan to the citywide lockdown, but the restrictions are still very much going to be in place for quite some time. And there's been quite a bit of complaint about the, uh, the restrictions. How is that being dealt with by what's typically a very heavily censored public space in China? Yeah, so I've noticed that the censorship is really kicking into overdrive uh, now because so many videos have come out from residents in Shanghai showing all sorts of stuff in recent days. First, it was the children who were taken off to a a COVID uh, hospital where their parents weren't allowed to accompany them. Um, That caused a lot of anger. Uh, Then it's the killing of pets belonging to people who test positive to COVID. There have been various videos, including one of a man in full PPE beating a dog to death on the street. Uh, you can imagine how that went down. Uh, all the videos about people going hungry, not getting sufficient food supplies, uh, that's caused a great deal of anger as well. And, and so now I've seen in some of these WeChat groups messages being forwarded telling people that their accounts will be suspended if they spread rumours, what the Chinese government calls rumours, uh, of negative news from Shanghai and particularly negative videos. And um, this isn't just for people in Shanghai, this is all across China. We're also seeing banners and increasingly going up, uh, telling people that they uh, must be careful about what they post online, that they shouldn't be posting uh, anything that uh, 
we could uh, potentially get them into trouble. So there's more and more a sort of culture of reminding people across China not to be posting anything about Shanghai, which isn't official news. As for residents in Shanghai, though, how do they feel about this? Well, a little bit earlier, I was speaking to one of them, uh, a woman named Lucy Nee. She's in lockdown. She's not particularly happy about uh, the problems with food supply. And um, she basically told me that she's just fed up with the way authorities have been running things. We are really angry about this authority now. So, yes, there are so many news will be deleted. But you know that if you, you, if you are threatened with your survival, then all your, all your angers will become really fierce. So, yes, we know that we are all middle class. And normally we know that we come to share this rumor. It, it could affect our job our occupation and our family, but it's kind of out of a limit. So, Linda, you can hear there from uh, Shanghai resident Lucy Nee just the, the, the level of frustration where these warnings, which are increasingly coming now from Chinese authorities telling people not to spread rumours, not to post negative news, um, a lot of people in Shanghai just really don't care anymore. They just feel they're doing it so tough that um, they're willing to defy authorities when it comes to these sorts of things. Now, Bill, how is this playing for China's leader Xi Jinping, who I note has gone off to a Chinese tropical island in the midst of all this? Yeah, a really uh, odd choice. Uh, news today from the Chinese government that Xi Jinping is on an inspection tour of the city of Sanya, which is the Chinese tourist destination on Hainan Island. That's the big island just to the south of the Chinese mainland, uh, right there in the top of the South China Sea. I've been there myself. It has crystal clear blue water, beautiful sand. It's a lovely place for a holiday. It's a really unusual place for the Chinese leader to go when there is a major crisis engulfing China's biggest city. And yet that's uh, where he is. You do remember, of course, uh, when the whole global pandemic began in Wuhan back in early 2020, Xi Jinping was one of the last Chinese leaders to turn up to Wuhan. He first of all sent his deputy, number two leader, Li Keqiang. Only once the virus was under control did China's leader roll into town. And so here we have this massive crisis in Shanghai. Xi Jinping, nowhere to be seen, pops up on a tropical island instead where tourists normally go to. Uh, hard to know how that's going down in China, Linda, because <laughs> no one is more carefully censored uh, than news about Xi Jinping. But I can imagine people in Shanghai are probably not thrilled to read that. Our East Asia correspondent, Bill Bertels. Well, international travellers are back in Australia and with them are coming exotic COVID-19 variants, such as the so-called Delta Cron. Experts say Australia still has no effective system for detecting new COVID variants at the border, despite CSIRO researchers proving they can find new variants in the sewage of passenger flights and cruise ships. They recommended wastewater be used for COVID surveillance at the border, but federal health authorities seem uninterested so far. John Daly has this report. Researchers from the University of Queensland and the CSIRO teamed up with Qantas and proved last year that you can detect COVID variants on long-haul repatriation flights. They put samples from airplane toilets under the microscope and identified some of the first cases of Omicron to arrive in Australia. University of Queensland researcher Johan Mueller co-authored the report. Late November, we really uh, heard about Omicron, and within a week we detected it in a flight from South Africa. Now in the future, when we look for new variants, I think we should think about where would they likely come from and where are the hubs 
planes is one particular example, could be a very useful way to identify where new variants emerge from. The paper, published in the journal Environment International late last year, recommends wastewater surveillance be used as part of clinical surveillance and quarantine for incoming travellers. Federal health authorities haven't taken it any further. And from next Monday, even pre-departure COVID tests for incoming travellers will be scrapped. Johan Mueller thinks it's a missed opportunity. No time in my life has research progressed so fast over such a short period than the last two years. When we first started, people were saying this is impossible. And now everybody in the world is doing it. And I'm saying it is possible for us to collect population-based samples. This kind of detailed wastewater surveillance could be useful within our borders. Australia was an early adopter of wastewater epidemiology and state health departments used it as an early warning alarm when COVID case counts were near zero. Daniel Deere is a water and sanitation expert who helps coordinate these state-based wastewater programs and he also advises the World Health Organisation. I think at this point in time, the health agencies that make decisions about where we allocate funding resources, haven't sought to uh, prioritise that. Uh, What I can say is that many other countries, such as um, Israel, um, the UK, United States, um, South Africa and others, do have variant detection as part of their routine programs. Daniel Deere says part of the problem is that wastewater monitoring is left to the states. That means inconsistency in funding and focus of these programs. Deakin University epidemiologist Catherine Bennett says health authorities mainly rely on PCR tests from people in hospital to try and find new or emerging variants. But she says population-based surveillance with things like wastewater testing will make a lot more sense going forward. You know, they talk about the virus being endemic, but that's the reality. If we're going to have it in the community on for the longer term, we do need to have really smart ways of keeping track of what's going on. That doesn't mean people taking time out, long queues, getting tested, but it really focuses on people who will be tested anyway as part of their care and um, management, but also some of these other surveillance systems that are actually monitoring the virus in our community. The Department of Health says it's continuing to work with relevant stakeholders to incorporate wastewater testing into the Australian National Disease Surveillance Plan for COVID-19. John Daly with that report. And that's PM for this Monday. I'm Linda Mottram. Thanks for listening. You can hear our stories at the PM webpage or find us on the ABC Listen app or the PM podcast. And there's a new election podcast for you with the latest election news and answers to your questions from the ABC's most experienced political analysts. It's called Australia Votes. Search for it on the ABC Listen app. Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The Australian-led peacekeeping mission in East Timor at the end of the 1990s, known as Interfet, was largely seen as a moment of national pride. But serious allegations of torture have been raised against some soldiers who were sent there. Today, Four Corners journalist Mark Willisey on how his reporting on alleged war crimes in Afghanistan led him back in time to uncover allegations of another blight on Australia's defence record. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.